0: Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrible and Yuguru people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
1: Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trainer Talks and Tales podcast. You're joined by your co-hosts, Tess and Daisy. Hey, Daisy. Hey, Tess. All right, Daisy, last week you were pretty excited to talk about something, and now that day has finally come, would you like to tell us a little bit more about what's happening at Sea Life?
1: Yes. Now I did tell Tess that there was something very exciting that I wanted to talk about on this podcast today. And that is that we have just announced our little blue penguin chick at sea life. Now this chick actually hatched back on the 25th of June after spending roughly about 35 days in our artificial incubator. Now we did decide to use that incubator to give the chick some extra help in successfully hatching. And by using that incubator, we then gave mum and dad a fake egg so, the, when the chick showed signs of hatching, we were actually able to just do a straight swap. Now, at the start, the membrane did show that it needed a bit of help. It was actually quite dry. So, we did assist hatch slightly. But after that, mum and dad, whose names are Aqua and Bluey, have done a fantastic job at raising that chick completely by themselves. Now, just recently, the chick weighed in at just over a kilo at around five weeks of age. And we've also seen at work that mum and dad have spent less and less time with the chick. So all of that indicated to us that it was time for the chick to graduate to the nursery. Now, the past week or so, we've been teaching that chick how to hand feed. We've been getting it used to us. And then once it is fully fledged, which is generally around eight weeks old, we will start introducing it to the rest of the colony and then also the water too. Now, a bit of a fun fact for everyone is that little blue penguins are what we call non-sexually dimorphic. So that just simply means that you can't tell the difference between the males and the females just by looking at them. We actually have to take a blood sample and send that off to a DNA lab to be tested. So we did do that last week, so make sure you stay tuned, and I will keep you posted on the outcome of that, and hopefully we'll have a name soon too. Super exciting, test!
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. I know you've been really pumped to talk about that and you're obviously very much involved in this chick's development so congratulations to you and your team that's um that's really wonderful news
1: thank you anyway tess how was your week you're still on holidays but do you have any recommendations for us
0: i do actually i'm still on holidays still living my best life um my recommendation actually follows on from a chat that we had with dan recently he inspired me to do your own research on the animals that you're working with and really further your knowledge about their naturalistic habits. So obviously I'm sitting on the beach, I'm eating chips, I'm reading a book, I'm not doing much, but above me, there are bromine kites, osprey, sea eagles in abundance, just actively hunting, enjoying those thermals and really working hard to grab those fish. And it's really cool to watch. So I think that's inspired me to encourage others to go out if you can and watch your animals and their naturalistic habits and naturalistic hunting techniques and that kind of stuff, or if you need to YouTube it and just see if you can recreate that as closely as possible in your zoological setting. So it's inspired me personally to make our Bromney kite uh, work hard for his food. We have a big dam at Lone Pine and I'd love to just throw in some food, have him fly around enjoy the wind a bit more but also like really work hard to grab some food off the surface of the water so really replicating what those guys are doing out there in the wild so yeah it it was cool to see and it's it's inspired me to bring that back to uh, work a little bit.
1: That is so cool that mainly the fact that you're seeing all of these birds out in the wild that's such a cool experience and also sometimes I feel Based on that, having a couple of weeks off, you tend to go back to work feeling so much more motivated and rested and ready to get stuck into brand new training ideas. Absolutely. Now, Tess, today's guest is a really close friend of mine. Her name is Colleen, and she actually has really extensive work with the marine mammal industry, both in the US and Australia. Now, these days, I am very lucky to work alongside her and absolutely consider her a mentor as well as a great friend. Tess, I know we say this every time, but I am particularly excited for this conversation. So let's get into it. Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for joining Tess and I today on the podcast. Now, before we get into anything too serious, we like to start with our fast five. So it's going to be five questions I'm going to ask you. Don't think too much about it. Just give us the first thing that comes to mind. Does that sound good? All right. I'll do my best. Okay. Cocktails, margarita or pina colada? Margarita. (laughs) pets ducks or chicken ooh ducks would you rather be invisible or be able to hear animal thoughts hear animal thoughts cats or dogs dogs grilled or guzman
2: guzman 100% guzman and Gomez.
1: <laughs> that was gonna be a tough one for you okay well Colleen you have an incredible resume working with the marine industry primarily in the U.S. but also a little bit now with me on the Sunshine Coast We've heard a little bit about how people in Australia have gone into the industry, but I'd say from what you've told me, it's a little bit different in America. Can you walk us through what your career pre- progression has looked like to where you are
2: now? Yeah, definitely. So I started and have a degree a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology and Aquaculture that I got from Florida Institute of Technology. Um, and from there, when I graduated, I actually did an internship at Georgia Aquarium, starting off with fish and invertebrates, which I am really lucky and really happy that I was able to do because I think it gave me a more well-rounded education. Um, and from there I did the mammal and bird internship at Georgia Aquarium, where I was primarily with African penguins and fell in love with African penguins, said, This is what I want to do forever. And a very wise Aaron Morling said, But you have never met a sea lion. <laughs> And then I did an internship with sea lions and then I really found my love. Uh, (laughs) Sea lions are 100% my bread and butter. I love working with them so much. Um, And from there, I was able to secure an internship at Audubon Zoo with sea lions. Um, And then my first paid position at Aquarium of Niagara, which was just part-time. And from there, I got my first full-time position at the Blank Park Zoo, which I was really lucky I got to work with a variety of different species, including fish and vertebrates again, and that definitely helped me learn a lot about water quality. And then from Blank Park Zoo, I went to Oregon Coast Aquarium, where I was also lucky to work with pinnipeds and sea otters, and then Gulf Gulfarium, where I got to do a bunch of stuff, and I was the lead of the sea lion area, and then I quit my job there to follow my husband to Australia, and... (laughs) Was terrified I would never get back in the fields, and then I was very lucky when I moved up to the Sunshine Coast that there was a position when I was moving.
0: Holy moly, that sounds incredible! That's a, <laughs> a lot of species, and a lot of facilities that you've worked at, but that's an amazing career progression. And lucky you got a spot at Sunshine Coast, it sounds like it's a great place to work. Daisy is always raving about it.
2: Yeah, we're super lucky that we've got such a cohesive and awesome team that are super passionate about what we do, and it's makes a big difference. Yes I definitely agree.
0: Absolutely love it. Well we've got you on today to talk about language and the importance of language within both marine and zoological facilities. Can you ch- chat a little bit more about what we mean when we say language?
2: Yeah so I think there's kind of two avenues to that and I also found that there was a big difference coming from the U.S. to Australia um, really in the mindset of the people. I think the U.S. I don't want to say it was more accepting of animals under human care but it definitely didn't seem quite as charged as it is here in Australia. Um but the language can come from you know how we speak to our guests um but it also can be how we speak to each other and the language that we use within the industry within an organization um, and how we communicate like I said with each other. We're pretty lucky At the Sunshine Coast that we work with really charismatic species like seals and penguins, and they can do a lot of talking for themselves. And I think it becomes even harder for people that work with some of the less charismatic species, you know, maybe insects or invertebrates that don't really have that same huge personality as a seal or a penguin would. And that's when the language becomes even more important because they're the ones talking for the animals even more than we are talking with these big mammals.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting, Um, and I think you covered that really nicely about what the topic is going to be today. The recent IMADA and ABMA conference was earlier this year, which you were very lucky to attend. Now, the IMADA is the International Marine Animal Training Association, and the ABMA is the Animal Behaviour Management Alliance. And they both hold conferences yearly, but this year was a combined conference. Now, one thing that came out of that most recent conference was an incredible presentation by Mark Simmons, who touched on language and its impact. Why do you think removing the word captivity is essential in all facilities moving forward?
2: Well, that is a very big question, Daisy. Um, So I think it is really important to put our best foot forward. And I think the word captivity is a very emotionally charged word so, Daisy, if I say the word captivity, how does that make you feel?
1: I think it, to me, it instantly has a negative association to it. As soon as I think of it, I don't feel
2: warm and excited about animals. Yeah. And Tess, how does it make you feel when I say the word captivity?
0: Yeah, absolutely the same. Um, I cringe now a little bit. I was like, oh, that's not what we want to be using these days. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Exactly. So I think if we in an industry don't want to be using the language and it's making us feel a certain way, think about how the uneducated public is going to feel when they hear the word captivity. So I'm going to do my own little plug. If you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to the Animal Behavior Conversation podcast labeled the past as prologue. It is with Mark Simmons and he does go over a lot about what he talked about in that I'm out at ABMA final presentation and it was so inspiring. Like I cannot get over how amazing it was and how it left you feeling a certain way. And so, you know, he talks about why we shouldn't be using the word captivity. And I completely agree. I just think that it is not a word that we want to associate our animals and our profession with. It's, we're not keeping them captive. We are enhancing their life. We're giving them amazing animal welfare. And our field has changed so much in the last 10, 15, 20 years that we've outgrown that word and we really just shouldn't be using it anymore.
1: Yeah. And I feel yeah. like recently we've seen in the study, the Cert 3 that used to be captive animals, um, which I actually did, has changed its name too.
2: Yes. I th- I forget exactly what it was. Oh, it is now the wildlife and exhibited animal care um, course instead of captive animal, which is amazing that they've updated that and that again from the very ground up sets the tone of when you're learning how to do it you don't even use the word captive anymore
0: yeah absolutely um i personally did my cert 3 and 4 in captive animals and i remember being 18 uh working at lone pine and telling people that i was so excited to start my course in tafe at in cert 3 in captive animals and a friend of mine asked me like offhandedly, and he wasn't meaning to be rude, but he was like, oh, Tess, when do you start your course on animals confined in cages? And I was like, excuse me? Like that that's no, <laughs> that's not what it's called. That's not what it's about. I'm so excited about this course. And he already had this kind of uh, connotation for captivity and that was disheartening. So I'm glad that that language is changing. That's
2: for sure. Yes, that is amazing. And Mm -hmm. I have an inspirational quote that I can give to everyone. Um, We've started something now on the Sunshine Coast every morning. Um, We all try to give an inspirational quote, and I love this one. So it's, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And that's by Maya Angelou. Um, And I think that's so true. Like, we did the best we can when we knew at the time that we were saying captivity and captive animals now we know better. So now it's our turn to do better.
1: Yeah. It's about looking forward and not really thinking too much about the past and where we're going.
0: Yeah. I love that. What a great quote. All right. Well, are you able to give us some examples or words uh, or phrases that can be used instead of those older traditional terms?
2: Yeah. So even starting from like the very level that we are, you know, I've traditionally been called a zookeeper. Well, I don't really think that's the full encompassing structure of what we do as animal care professionals. So we can say we're an animal care professional, an animal care specialist, even a duologist, I think adds an element of science to it, which is so important because we're not just zookeepers. We're not just keeping animals. We're doing so much more and so much more with their welfare. Um, I think words like tank, Cool enclosure, cage just don't really have a meaning anymore because it's so much more than that. These habitats that are being built now encompass enrichment, you know, encourage species specific behavior with all of the animals that are in it. So why would we still call it something that it's not? It's so much more than a cage or an enclosure. It's a habitat. It's an exhibit. And I think that's so important.
1: Yeah, I feel like we're starting to see habitats be designed based on the species' individual needs and what they're doing out in the wild and how we can replicate that as much as possible in human care. And I guess on me saying that, what are some great examples for replacing the word captivity?
2: So I think instead of saying captivity, we could say the animals are under managed care or human care or even zoological care. um, And not just are they under that care? But there's usually a reason that they're under that care. And I think that's also so important to tell the public is why are they here? They're not usually here because they're healthy animals. A lot of them were rescued or stranded. You know, We work with seals that have eye injuries and eye problems and they wouldn't survive out in the wild. And I think it's so important to tell the public that as well as use the correct language.
1: Yeah, I think I completely agree. Now, I think sometimes using the right language can also give the guests a slightly better understanding and also recognition of our profession and how hard we work. How important do you think that the impact of language can be on guests?
2: I think it is so vitally important. Um, Something that Mark talked about a lot in the past is prologue is that as an industry, we haven't brought the guests along with us for our journey. So we've progressed in this industry so much in the last 10 years, but we haven't really explained that to the public. And I think that that's so important. I think, you know, my generation of my age group or generation was inspired to become animal care specialists because we went to SeaWorld in America for an American. We saw the Shamu show and we connected with those animals so much but now it's evolved even further. So our generation was inspired because of that. And now we've swung too far the other way that we've humanized these animals too much. And we run into pitfalls of trying to explain the science behind it and not just the emotion behind it. And I think being able to explain that to the public is so, so important. I guess, you know, if it does work, we can say, that our methods around animal care and welfare have evolved so much. And we need to put that out to the public. That's so important to educate them, you know, of why these animals are unique and what makes them unique and not necessarily what makes them human.
1: Even you saying that right now has made me realize how important that message is that you just said about we've brought us on as trainers and Specialists, but we really haven't brought the guests along and we've kind of forgotten about the impact that that can be on everyone as well as everyone else as well. So, then I guess moving slightly towards training language. um, Personally, for me, I saw a huge change in language spoken when I transferred into the marine field compared to the previous zoological facilities I'd worked in. Do you mind expanding a little bit on that and possibly why?
2: Yeah, so I think that the marine mammal training field has been around for a long time and they've been training animals in this field a specific way for many, many generations. And I think sometimes some of the other species of animals that maybe have less training experience don't use the same language and they're starting to now catch up to the language that is used when we are training marine mammals. Using language that is cohesive to an entire industry is important. And it's now just catching up that we're maybe becoming a wider industry, connecting all of the species of animals, not just marine, but also tying in terrestrial animals and starting to see the value of training and how it ties into animal welfare, because it plays such a big role in their overall well-being for their medical training but also just for mental stimulation and to reduce stereotypic behavior. And there's a plethora of things that it is so good for.
1: I think there was a time where we really, some zoological facilities or some trainers would say that a lot of the training was left to the Marine world. And we didn't do that in zoological facilities with terrestrial animals. And I think that is completely changing. And we saw that a lot at the recent ASAK conference that, Concepts, training behaviors that were done primarily with marine mammals are now being done across all facilities and all species, which is really exciting.
2: And something I learned really early on in my career is every time you interact with an animal, you are training it whether you mean to or not. So that's something so important to keep in mind is maybe the training is becoming more intentional. So it's not just you're interacting with an animal, but you're intentionally training to alter their behavior or to approximate their behavior towards something more desirable or less stereotypic or something to increase their overall welfare
1: you have said that to me from day one (laughs) so I always remember that now
2: (laughs)
0: absolutely and I think it's important to remember that also a lot of our listeners aren't trainers uh, but might aspire to be so are there any resources you would recommend for people who want to broaden their understanding of training and training language
2: Yeah, definitely. I think some really good resources even just come from the IMATA and ABMA pages. Um, I think both of them have a term, a glossary of terms, which is super helpful and something that when I was a little baby intern that I definitely looked at. Um, But going up from that, Karen Pryor's book, Don't Shoot the Dog, is an amazing entry level into training and shaping. And, you know, Karen Pryor's 10 Laws of Shaping is something that I've used and learned about from day dot. Um, And even more advanced than that, Ken Ramirez's animal training book that has been referred to in my career as the Bible. The Bible. (laughs) is also an amazing resource and just has so much information.
1: Uh, Yeah, I definitely utilize a lot of those resources and I would highly recommend for anyone listening that really wants to expand or just really start their understanding of training knowledge and understanding the language that's utilized. Do you think, however, that the scientific language should be used by trainers to ensure that we have that common professional dialogue? Or do you think purely just understanding the training concepts is enough?
2: I think that understanding the training concepts is the most important part. So I'm not going to say that using the scientific language or the common language isn't important, but I think the most important thing is absolutely to understand what you're doing, but also why you're doing it. So you can teach a man to fish and that's going to sustain him for way longer. Or if you give him a fish, it's only going to sustain him for a day. So if you understand the process behind something, it's so much more important than understanding what it's called. But with that being said, I also think it is important to be able to put our best foot forward as an industry and to make it easier to communicate with each other to have that common language as well. Um, And even from that, you know, I've been really fortunate in my career that I've worked at a variety of different facilities and every facility has its own slang. So for example, I work here and we call it a daily physical exam. So that's when we examine our animals from tip to toe, like all over their body. At my last facility, we called it lookovers. It is the exact same thing, but it's called something completely different. So I think the truly great trainer is going to be able to adapt to whatever language that facility or that person that they're talking to is using. And that's the sign that like you've really gotten there.
1: Yeah, I can agree more. And I think understanding is way more important than the language.
0: Okay, so we have a few questions that we were sent by our listeners. We're going to get started with them. What is the main difference with animal training in the US compared to Australia?
2: So I think in terms of the actual training that we do, we use the same principles. We mainly train using positive reinforcement, all-encompassing operant conditioning. So there's the four quadrants of operant conditioning mainly focused on positive reinforcement. That's the same no matter where you work, hopefully. Um, But I think the big difference between the U.S. and Australia is that there's just so many more places in the U.S., that they're constantly doing something different and new and they're bouncing each other, like ideas off of each other. And it's just at like maybe a quicker pace because there's so many more places and they're also more accessible. Like there might be four facilities in the span of a half an hour and they all have sea lions and that's completely different than Australia that there's only a couple of facilities with sea lions. Um, So, it's the training itself is very, very similar or the same. I think the access to getting animals and moving animals and maybe going quicker with certain things um, and way less health and safety in America like, way less. Too many rules in Australia, I'll say.
1: (laughs) And I guess without a doubt, it's pretty obvious that your passion lies within marine. So for someone who might want to get started within that marine field, what are your best tips to get started?
2: Yeah, so it's a little bit different between Australia and the US. The US is so focused on needing a degree, whereas Australia, just as a whole country, so many less people have a four-year degree. And I think that's great. You can make a livable wage in Australia and live a really nice life and never have to get a degree And I Haven't been to America in the field since post-COVID, so things might have changed. I don't really know, but I think when I was coming up in the field, you pretty much had to have a four-year degree. So depending on what country you're in, you can tailor this advice to whatever you'd like. But I think the most important thing is to get experience and be so open to every experience that you can get. There is value in everything. And so if you want to work with marine mammals... There's so much value in learning how to work with free flight birds like Tess. I'm sure you can definitely talk about that, but you can learn something that you can apply to the marine mammals in everything. So cross train, get every experience that you can be willing to move and ask questions, read, listen to podcasts, you know, just expose yourself to as much as you possibly can. And that's going to make you a way more well-rounded applicant but also trainer if you get to that role
1: yeah I think that's really cool and I think if you're already possibly within a marine facility but not quite where you want to be from my experience get the hard work done first and then watch sessions and ask as many questions as possible and quiz everything and it will really give you that way more thorough understanding of the concepts and why we're doing what we're doing
2: Yes. Daisy was the best at that. She was like, <laughs> I'm going to ask you every question under the sun, please answer me. And I'm like, ah! yes, that's me. <laughs> Usually taught me what I was doing wrong by asking me really good questions. So good, great way of learning yes. and teaching.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's great. And I'm glad that you mentioned that too. Um, I feel like in Australia, there is a, a lot of emphasis sometimes on straight out of school, go to uni, do this, that kind of thing. I personally didn't. A lot of my friends haven't. And we went straight into volunteering at the zoological facilities we wanted to work out or um, just getting that hands-on experience. And I think that's important for you to say, and I really resonate with that, like just get involved and learn. I think what you said was very succinct, just get involved, ask questions and learn take opportunities so i think you summed that up really nicely okay well we do have one final question uh what is your favorite seal species to work with
2: look this is a hot topic okay um (laughs) everyone that works with me will know that i am in love with california sea lions they are just the best they are so high energy so enthusiastic um I don't think that I've had a proper chance to work with Australian sea lions um, quite as much as I would need to, to inform that total decision. So right now I'll say California sea lions, but I reserve the right to change to Australian sea lions in the future.
1: The way you talk about <laughs> Calis is gonna be really hard to knock them off the top.
2: they are just so fun, so much energy, the crazier, the better.
1: Well, Colleen, I don't know about you, Tess, but I think this has been such an interesting and super informative conversation. If anyone does want to reach out to you with any questions, where is best that they find you?
2: Yep. So probably the easiest is on Instagram. My tag or handle or whatever it's called these days is uh, Colleen Elizabeth Weir. Elizabeth is spelled with an S. Um, I'm also on Facebook, so you can feel free to find me. I'm not on many of the other newer ventures because I'm an old lady.
1: I may think well thank you so much Colleen again thank you so much it was so great thanks yes what a great chat and such a cool topic to talk about one thing I actually forgot to mention during that conversation was recently at sea life our managers have actually changed our job titles from marine animal trainers to marine animal specialists and I think that's really cool I think it just covers so much more of what we do than just train animals
0: yeah, I think a few other facilities have done this too. So it's exciting to see what else will change in the next year or so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tess, I think that is enough for us. But as always, if you do have any questions or any feedback, we would love to hear. You can reach out on our socials, which is at Trainer Talks and Tales. But that is enough from us for today. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.